a little town in <clears throat> Alabama turned a, a tragedy into triumph. The major livelihood of this, of this town was raising cotton. One year, just as it had, uh, just as it appeared that there would be a very large harvest, a bumper crop, the boll weevil invaded. And if you don't know, a boll weevil is a beetle that feeds on the on the cotton buds and the flowers. Anyway, the the cotton crop was destroyed. And the economy of that little town was devastated. Well, the farmers uh, in that town weren't ready to throw in the towel. And one of them got the idea of planting peanuts instead of cotton. Because boll weevils don't like peanuts. Another farmer decided to plant yet another kind of crop, and others followed suit. Before long, large harvests of peanuts and other produce began to repair the economy of the town. In fact, the town became more prosperous than it would ever have been if cotton had remained its only crop. Interestingly, you have it up on screen? The town, which later came to be known as Enterprise, Alabama, erected a monument to the boll weevil. That's what... What had almost been a source of their destruction in the end became a reason for rejoicing and prosperity. Like this little town in Alabama, the Jews in the story of Esther had come close to being destroyed by their enemy. They were facing certain death from an extermination order. But now, it would seem that God, who is working behind the scenes, has put things in reverse. And the circumstances have completely turned around for the Jews. Last Monday... After returning home from a little bit of time here at church, I was listening to a sermon by Mark Bradley, who preached on Esther chapter 6 several weeks ago. Mark is, a, is an elder at Cross Point Baptist Church. He's the director of the Gateway Seminary in Vancouver. He's a theological brainiac. And he is my friend. 
When I used to attend that church in Vancouver, I taught a Sunday school class there. And Mark would join us. I always cringed when Mark would raise his hand in class with a question for me. For I had no doubt that Mark already knew the answer to his question. He just wanted to see me squirm with the question. Anyway, I was curious as to how Mark dealt with Esther chapter 6. We've already dealt with Esther chapter 6. Anyway, in his sermon entitled, The Reversal of Destiny, Mark pointed out this, this theme of reversal that ran throughout the story of Esther, which really became obvious in chapter 6 when Haman, you remember Haman, Haman had intended to execute Mordecai. He went to the king early that morning to get permission. But before he could make his case with false allegations, the king commanded Haman to parade Mordecai around the city square as a hero. Remember that? It was a reversal of destiny. A reversal which marked the beginning of the end for Haman. As I considered this theme of reversal, I thought of the other reversals in this story of Esther. In Esther 7, there was a reversal of fate. If you recall, Haman had pulled an all-nighter to erect a 75-foot pole to have Mordecai impaled on it. And it was on the exact same night that King Ahasuerus couldn't sleep and learned that Mordecai had saved his life five years earlier. But he was not recognized or rewarded for his loyalty. On the day that Haman had planned to execute Mordecai, Queen Esther unloaded on him in front of the king. And when all was said and done, it was Haman who was impelled on the very pole he had erected for Mordecai. Later in chapter 8, there was a great reversal of fame and fortune. If you remember, at one time, Haman was the number two man in the Persian Empire. He had possession of the king's signet ring. On top of that, he was an extremely wealthy man. So much so, he even offered to foot the entire bill for the extermination of the Jews throughout the empire. But when the dust finally settled, it was Mordecai 
who became the number two man in the Persian Empire. And he had the king's signet ring. And as a bonus, all of Haman's wealth was given to Mordecai. Well, that brings us to Esther chapter 9. Where we will see yet another reversal. A reversal of favor. So if you have your Bible, turn to Esther chapter 9, and we'll begin with verse 1. She'll be on the board behind me. Esther chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary, so that the Jews themselves gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on the peoples. Even all the princes of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who were doing the king's business assisted the Jews because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces for the man Mordecai became greater and greater. About nine months have passed between this new decree from Mordecai and this last month of the year. It's now the 13th day of the 12th month. The day that everyone had marked on their calendars. At first, it was a day that the Jews had dreaded. It was to be a day of their extermination, according to the decree written by Haman and blindly approved by the king. It was a day meant for evil, but Haman is gone. And Mordecai is in his place. The decree of Haman could not be revoked according to the law. It's in effect. So Mordecai created a new decree which gave the Jews the legal right to defend themselves against enemies who were determined to destroy them. And the Jews had their enemies. In our story thus far, 
We've been focused on one wicked man named Haman. But throughout the Persian Empire, there were thousands of people just like Haman who hated the Jews and wanted to wipe them off the face of the earth. And yet God, who is not mentioned in this story anywhere, placed courage in the hearts of the Jews and fear in the hearts of their enemies. For all could see these series of reversals that God was clearly working on behalf of His people. Another reason for fear was the knowledge that the Jews now had friends in very high places. King Ahasuerus, Queen Esther, and Mordecai. Everyone knew where these three stood in the matter of the Jews. In fact, we are told that Mordecai the Jew had become so powerful that the other officials throughout the empire felt compelled to take the side of the Jews out of fear of what Mordecai would do to them if they didn't. For the Jews, they were once the fearful. But now the tables have turned and they are the feared. They now have the, the, the position of, of favor and power. And on the 13th day of the 12th month, they mustered together to defend themselves against anyone who wanted to attack and destroy them. So let's see what they did with all that favor and power, beginning with verse 5. This is going to be a tough passage, so bear with me. Thus the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them. And at the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And Parshandatha, Dolphon, Aspatha, Poratha, Adalia, Aridatha, this is killing me, Parmesha, Arishai, Aridai, and Vayezatha. Okay. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamdatha, the Jews' enemy, but they did not lay hands on the plunder. This passage gives us a summary of what happened in the capital city of Susa, where the king's palace was located. On that day, 500 men, men 
whose hatred was greater than their fear, came against the Jews and were killed for it. To include the ten sons of Haman, who probably sought revenge for their father's execution. They all got what was coming to them. But notice the last part of verse 10. But they did not lay hands, their hands on the plunder. Do you see that? The Jews had the legal right in Mordecai's decree to take the spoils of those they had killed. But they didn't do it. It was a common practice for victors to take what had once belonged to a defeated foe. But apparently, the Jews had come to some kind of agreement amongst themselves to leave the plunder alone. They defended themselves, but they exercised self-control and did not plunder their enemies. We are not told why. But maybe the Jews wanted everyone to know that their motive for battle was not for profit, but only for protection. And that's why they did not take it any further. Now, there's another possibility, which I tend to favor. If you recall in the decree, the Jews were also given the legal right to kill the women and children of their enemies. But there is nothing recorded in the account to suggest they exercised that right. A possible reason for not taking the plunder may have been an act of compassion and mercy for the women and the children. For if the Jews had taken the plunder, then the families of the dead men would have nothing to live on. For the Jews, just because they had a legal right to do something didn't mean it was right to exercise that right. The Jews had the legal right to take the plunder and to kill the women and children of their enemies, but instead they showed restraint and demonstrated compassion and mercy to others. Charles Swindoll says... Not only did the Jews gain mastery over their enemies, but they gained mastery over themselves. So there was a lot going on in the city of Susa, 
where the king resides. And he hears about it. And that brings us to verse 11. On that day, the number of those who were killed at the citadel in Susa was reported to the king. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman at the citadel in Susa. What then have they done in the rest of the king's providences? Now, what is your petition? It shall even be granted to you. And what is your further request? It shall also be done. Then Queen Esther, then said Queen Esther, if it pleases the king, let tomorrow also be granted to the Jews who are in Susa to do according to the edict of today. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded that it should be done so, and an edict was issued in Susa. And Haman's ten sons were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa assembled also on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men in Susa, but they did not lay hands on the plunder. The king gets a casualty report of how many men were killed by the Jews in Susa. And he shares this information with Queen Esther. Just in Susa alone, 500 men had been killed by the Jews. And who knows what was occurring throughout the rest of the empire. But apparently... The king wants to make sure his wife is happy. Happy wife, happy life. We know that. And instead of telling her, Esther, enough is enough, he asks her if there is anything else she would like. Esther asks for two things. First, for the Jews specifically in Susa. She asked that the decree of Mordecai be extended one more day so the Jews could finish off their enemies who may have escaped and gone into hiding. The king granted her request and we are told another 300 more men were killed in Susa on the following day. So 800 men Men who dared to attack the Jews in the king's own city of Susa, where both Queen Esther and Mordecai lived, that's pretty brazen, were killed in two days. Secondly, Esther asked that the ten sons of Haman Sons who were already killed be impelled. 
What's up with that? The sons are already dead. What, what purpose could this serve? At first glance, it seems a little vindictive of Queen Esther. But apparently, this was a common practice in those days in the Persian Empire. The bodies of certain criminals would be impaled on public display as a warning to anyone else who might consider further attacks against the Jews. So that's what was happening in Susa. But what was going on in the rest of the empire? Well, we are told, beginning with verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's providences assembled to defend their lives and rid themselves of their enemies and kill 75,000 of those who hated them. That's a lot. But they did not lay hands on their plunder. This was done on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 13th and the 14th of the same month. But they rested on the 15th day and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. Therefore, the Jews of the rural areas who live in the rural towns make the 14th day of Adar a holiday for rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. So we are told that 75,000 men from India to Ethiopia were killed throughout the rest of the Persian Empire. And remember, the Jews were not the aggressors here. Those who were killed were those who hated and sought to murder the Jews. And just like we previously read, the Jews exercised restraint and self-control. They did not plunder the possessions and property of those belonging to their enemies, and there is no mention that women and children were killed. Now, in the rest of this passage, we are told about the days of, of feasting and rejoicing that followed all the fighting. A holiday which follows this reversal of favor for the Jews. And next week, we will go into that in depth, okay? For the rest of my time this morning, I want to explore this theme of reversal a little further. We have seen several reversals in the story of Esther. But I want to steer us to another reversal. A reversal so great 
that it impacts each and every one of us. It's a reversal of the fall. Some 700 years, 700 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet Isaiah describes this great reversal. We are told, and you know this passage, we are told in Isaiah 53, beginning with verse 3, and just listen as I read this. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. All of us, all of us, like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us to fall on him. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted. Yet, he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. Like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. 
Listen to this. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. Putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul. He will see it. And be satisfied. By his knowledge. The righteous one. My servant. Will justify the many. As he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. This is a passage that describes the life and the ministry and the death of Jesus. He was the King of Kings. The King of Kings. And yet he was born in a cave. A stable. And placed in a feeding trough. He was born in poverty in Bethlehem and grew up as a carpenter's son in the despised city of Nazareth. In his ministry, Jesus did miraculous works and spoke amazing words. He attracted Great crowds of people who were nothing like him. Nothing like him. And yet, he was rejected by the very people who were supposed to represent a loving God. And then Jesus gave up his rights. Without making a defense. Without making a defense. He was falsely accused and arrested. Tried in a a kangaroo court. Stripped and beaten to a pulp. Mocked. Spat upon. And hung on a Roman cross to die between two criminals. After his death, Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb. And that was to be the end of the story. It would seem that the enemies of God had won. And that darkness had triumphed over light. It's all over but the crying. 
or so they thought. It wasn't over. In fact, it was just the beginning. It was a well-planned reversal where Jesus took the fall for the fallen. In God's plan, it was God's plan that His own Son be crushed for us. It was God's plan that His Son would suffer grief and sorrow for us. God planned that His own Son would be made a sin offering for us, for our guilt. And from His death on the cross would come everlasting life for us. It was a great reversal. That's what He did for us. I like this quote from John Stott. Listen to this. He says, The essence of sin, okay? The essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God. Let me repeat that. The essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting Himself for us. We we put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God puts Himself where we deserve to be. That's the gospel in a nutshell. It's the good news. It's the great reversal. And that truth should change us from the inside out and lead to reversals in our own life. In light of what Jesus did for us, Maybe there are things in our own life that need to be reversed. I know there was in mine. Beginning at the age of 17, I had absolutely no love or respect or forgiveness for my father. 
you hear that? At the age of 17, I had no love or respect or forgiveness for my father. In my eyes, in my eyes, from my perspective, from my point of view, he was a failure sitting in a federal prison. My mother and her three children, me being the oldest, were left high and dry trying to make ends meet. As soon as I graduated high school, three days later, I had to get out of town. And I joined the Coast Guard. <clears throat> At the age of 20, a pastor shared the truth of the gospel with me. And I received Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. I knew the Heavenly Father loved me and yet... I did not love my earthly father. I knew he loved me. But I could not love my dad. I prayed that God would help me. And one day, and this is hard to explain... God gave me a peek. A peek into my father's heart. My father had suffered with frequent, consistent bouts of severe depression. He too saw himself as a complete failure in virtually every aspect of life. And in his heart, when offered a shortcut to make things better, when presented with a quick way to make some easy money, my father bit. He took it. My father went to prison. And that's where he needed to be. You reap what you sow, right? He did the wrong thing. But in a weird way. His heart was in the right place. For he truly wanted to provide for his family.
all along, he was thinking about his family. From that moment on, I saw my father in a different light. And there was a reversal in my own heart. A reversal of love and respect and forgiveness. When we see Jesus as He is, when we see how loved we truly are, when we see how forgiven we are, when we see what He has done for us, when we see what He endured for us, it changes us. It renews us. It transforms us. I could easily focus on my father's failures. I could take that time and focus on my own failures. And there are plenty of them. But instead, it is so much better to dwell on the one who succeeded for me. That's the great reversal. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for changing hearts, for changing destinies, for, for changing fate, for changing favor. You're the God of reversals. I thank you for sending Jesus to a Roman cross who endured torture and sorrow and anguish for me, for the world. You love us that much. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. We do not deserve any of it. But I'm often reminded, even though we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. Even at our worst, at our worst, Jesus did his best for us. Thank you, Lord. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. Father, draw us into Yourself. Help us to see You. Help us to know You. Help us to love You. Help us to obey You. Help us to trust You. May You be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not a, a counselor by any stretch of the means. I can spell it, barely.
But I have to wonder. How can I be angry? At another. How can I be unloving? How can I be judgmental? How can I be unforgiving? In light of the cross. How can I be unforgiving when Jesus forgave me? How can I be unloving when Jesus loved me? How can I be impatient? And Jesus is more than patient with me. How can I be angry when Jesus showed grace and mercy to me? It's almost hypocritical, isn't it? It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's the cross that changes everything. It changes how I see myself. And it changes how I see you. Jesus doesn't see you the way I see you. You know the crazy part? Jesus doesn't see me the way I see me. That's wild. That's wild. He loves us, you and me, more than we will ever know. If Isaiah 53 doesn't explain that to you, You must have missed it. We were all like sheep. All of us had gone astray. All of us. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is a love beyond understanding for me. I can't comprehend that. But that is the God's honest truth. He loves us that much. And if you're dealing with things as far as being unloving, unforgiving, angry, judgmental, I could go on and on and on. Maybe you have lost sight of the cross. Because the cross changes everything. Maybe you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I would love to introduce you to Him. He loves you dearly. He told us about it. Maybe you're looking for a church home. 
We'd love to have you here. Maybe there's something else. Maybe there's something else. He says he took our sorrows and our anguish. He took that upon himself. He's a great God. However the Lord leads you this morning. However he leads you this morning. I just pray that you be obedient and respond. Thank you for coming uh, this morning. I hope uh, that message was was meaningful uh, to you. I know it was for me. Let me uh, pray for our offering this morning. Just to remind you, our baskets are back there. And then also I want to pray for our, our fellowship as well. Father, I thank you again for who you are and what you do. You are our Heavenly Father. I thank you that you desire to hear our voice. You ask us to call upon you to lay our burdens and our, our, just our heartfelt anguish to you. Thank you for who you are, Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would just bless us as we give our tithes and offerings to your work. Bless the gift and the giver, Lord God, and I pray that you would help us as a church to use your money wisely. And then for our fellowship, Father, bless this time together. Bless the food to our bodies. Bless those who have brought and prepared food. Lord God, I pray just to be a sweet time, a time where we make connections with one another. May you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.